Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Janine Zakaria. I'm the Carlos Kelly McClatchy Lecturer in the Department of Communication at Stanford University, and I'll be your moderator this evening. Over the last five decades, we've seen the dramatic globalization of organized crime and corruption, now totaling trillions of dollars every year. This includes corrupt banks, law firms, elected officials, lobbyists, and criminal networks who are contributing to global inequality and the decline of democratic institutions around the world. In 2007, Drew Sullivan and Paul Radu founded OCCRP, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Spanning six continents, OCCRP is a global network of more than 180 investigative journalists, researchers, data engineers, and security specialists who work tirelessly to expose crime and corruption with the highest degree of journalistic ethics and editorial standards. I'll be in conversation with Drew and Paul for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have about 15 minutes for audience questions. Drew and Paul, thank you for being here. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. What I want to do uh, tonight is define the problem first and then talk about your methods, sort of the more nuts and bolts of the organization and the journalism. But first, let's talk about this problem. Why, in your view, maybe we'll start with you, Drew, are we seeing such a growth in organized crime and corruption now in 2023? You know, I think, Janine, that we're recognizing it in 2023, but really um, it's, been, it's been growing for a long time. And it really started, you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall um, when a tremendous amount of money was released from the East um, and came into the West. And this was really profoundly undemocratic money. Um, and it, it, uh, it was basically, um, con it, it connected with um, what we call the criminal services industry. Those are the, the banks, the lawyers, the uh, registration agents who really helped move this money into the West. Um, and this empowered organized crime, um, connecting them to a global market, um, you know, uh, gi giving them the, the kind of resources they got into, um, you know, the West at a time when, you know, Google was was booming and they made fortunes in the stock market. And and so it, it created kind of an industry um, that's been just growing from there. And it, it's a very low key industry. But it's it's got the same elements of, you know, uh, you know, uh, capitalism and, and the industries that, that we know about. And so it, it's really been kind of just under the radar for many years. And we see it as a hedge fund with a lot of money. But behind it is really, you know, drug cartel money and, uh, you know, money stolen from from countries in the West and and kleptocratic money. Um, and it's been cleaned and it's been made. It's given a nice blue blood um, face to it. But it is criminal money that begets more criminality. Paul, why do you think it's, besides the work that you're doing, why are we noticing it more now then? I mean, it's really the, the awareness of people and the fact that um, a lot of crime has become more globalized in the past three decades. Um, I mean, we're looking at crime from back in the 50s of the last century, 60s, and it slowly, slowly grew across continents, across the world. And it, it, it was really, I mean, organized crime is a product of the Cold War. And it, it leads us into, into the new Cold War, actually. So I think, you know, there, there's more uh, awareness of, of, of what's going on around the world and the fact that we can connect the dots right now and see that the same group of people, you know, who are hurting um, 
citizens in Mexico, you know, these drug cartels from Mexico are hurting people in in Europe and in Africa. It's, it's the same groups. Um, decades ago, we, we would see these as separate kind of incidents. And now we see that there's a line connecting them because this, this is transcontinental organized crime. So that is a, a big, big change. That's a big different, uh, difference that, that's made by the perception of, of what is going on. And by the fact that investigators, uh, law enforcement sometimes, uh, obviously journalists, you know, can, can see, can dig through public records and can connect, you know, um, uh, data from, from one continent to another to actually see the networks. And we, we actually learned a lot from the criminals at OCCRP. When we started OCCRP, we would be going to interview criminals who were convicted for various types of crimes. And we would always ask them how and why. And one of the, the explanations that they always gave us was that their work was in the public interest. They always said... The criminals know, said their work was in the public the interest? The criminals said that their work was in the public interest and that they were doing a favor to their victims. Mm-hmm. For instance, these were uh, traffickers in persons. You know, they were trafficking human beings you know, from one place to another, exploiting them. And they said, well, we actually took these people from these poor villages in Eastern Europe and gave them a chance in Paris or in Barcelona and all that. But they always worked across networks. These people were already organized in networks way before journalists. Mm-hmm. So this, were, uh, this was their strength. And they, they, they talked freely about it because they knew at that time that their power is unmatched, that they, they had this sense of impunity that because they're operating across frontiers, that they have no enemy because the law enforcement was always stopping at the borders of a country. And these people were hopping borders without any problem. I see. Just for the people who are not immersed in this, maybe we should just define dirty versus dark money. Mm-hmm. Can you do that, Drew? So, 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 so dark money really, I, I mean... Uh, I'm not sure of the um, the orthodox definition of it, but the way that we see it is is really dark money is intended to be hidden um, and and transferred for another purpose. Um, dirty money is just I made a lot of money in a corrupt method, and I'm going to go launder it in New York and buy a nice big apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, but dark money really has an intention of you know um, uh, either propagating uh, criminality or influencing things, supporting a terrorist group, for example. Exactly. Would that be dark? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so, so what we've actually seen is a lot of organized crime. And it's difficult, you know, organized, when we say organized crime, we often mean corrupt um, governments. Um, you know, so, so there, are, there are corrupt states that are really an ongoing criminal conspiracy um, at, for doing things for the purpose, not of the state, but for criminal gain. And so we consider them organized crime. And that's your sweet spot? You guys are focused more on the state corruption than well, sort of these individuals combined. or both? Or they work with these bad actors? They work with each other. So if you look again back to the last century, to the 70s, 80s in Eastern Europe, what you see is that the socialist communist regimes in that part of the world, they weaponized organized crime. So what they did was, in order to undermine the West in various ways, they teamed up with traditional mafia groups from Italy. So there's a lot of do- uh, lots of documents in the archives of these countries in Bulgaria, in Romania, in Hungary, in Czech Republic, where you see the secret services, the state secret services, working hand in hand with the Italian mafias to organize these trafficking networks. Sometimes smuggling people, sometimes you know trafficking cigarettes, narcotics, everything. So there was always this intersection between the state and the organized crime. With the with the fall of communism in '89. Lots of these secret service agents who used to work for the state went private. 
and they started their own PMC, these private uh, companies, and they, they, they started working for their own interests rather than the state. Mm -hmm. And this bond between organized crime and these people became even stronger, and they acquired lots of industrial assets at first in, the, in Eastern Europe, and then because they accumulated so much wealth, they were able to expand to the US, to Germany, and to, to many other, other places on Earth. So one of the things that you say this whole phenomenon does is it furthers global inequality. Where do we see this most starkly? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, you're, you're seeing it in places like Africa, um, uh, where, you know, there, there's, uh, Africa is resource rich. Um, and yet almost every single, in, in so many countries, almost every single exploitable asset is being controlled, uh, first through the government and then who they're actually selling it to which could be through bribery to, to you know, people who exploit it for profit, but often to people that they're connected with or to their political parties or their criminal groups. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of money that could be used to bring people out of poverty in these countries you know, is, is being exploited, and then the money goes to the West. So you have really high costs of money locally, um, which makes it even more difficult to get loans and for small businesses to start and for people to buy houses. And so you, you have in, in a, an increasing impoverishment with high rates in those countries while the money flowed to the West and it, it would go into, you know, accounts and be loaned back through banks. And we had too much money. You know, um, we were we were gambling with money in the West. You know, so, so it, it's created this um, skewed economic system that's bad for both places. And then they're sending billions over and then we're sending millions back in aid mm -hmm. um, to, to, you know, try to bring these countries out of poverty. They have everything they need. It's just all being stolen. I want to talk about that, you know, lack of enforcement, the enablers, uh, the, the, the enabling role that I guess some of the banks play in a moment. Did you want to add to that bar of the question here? Uh, yeah, I'll uh, I was actually gonna gonna add that you know there's this image that plays very vividly in my mind from time to time, and it's my first time in Kinshasa in the DRC in the Congo, and I've never seen anything like that. I mean that's an immensely rich country with lots of resources, and you go and you walk on the main boulevard in Kinshasa, and you see so many sick people walking down the street. A lot of dirt roads it's, too. And... It's paludism. It's, it's all sorts of, of sickness. I mean, you see them, and these are all treatable diseases. And, and, you, and you see that they're not treated and they're in really, really bad shape. Lots of them. It's like unbelievable. And that's, that's one example of a country that's, that's looted to the bone and people are suffering like big, big, big time. Another um, thing that you argue and, and prove is that how... All of this is leading to a decline in our democratic institutions and a rise of populism that we're seeing around the globe. What are some of the most startling examples of that? How can we make this concrete for people? So, so, so the first thing to understand is that, um, you know, one of the things that organized crime seeks to do is really undermine law enforcement and undermine journalism and undermine the elements of the state that can really fight back against them. And so they do that with with populists and often those populists will attack law enforcement they'll attack journalism they'll, they'll attack kind of these tools um, and so so you know we've seen um, that this is all really about state capture um, and and there's been some examples of it played out in places like Hungary and now recently Slovakia and other places where you have um, really nasty criminal organizations running the state um, and then they use this kind of populism uh, to, to, to 
propagandize the people and to attack the, the people that, that were interested. And so that, that's really been the model. And once you capture the state, you undermine you know, elections, you undermine uh, law enforcement. When the president of Serbia, as an example, became, became president, uh, Alexander Vucic, um, the first thing he did was, literally the first thing he did was fire the lead um, organized crime investigator in the country. Uh, and then he he fired the judges who had um, been involved in a number of big cases. And then he started firing law enforcement um, people, um, you know. Uh, and ev eventually, the he he put in in ahead of law enforcement a police officer who had been fired because he was found hosing down a murder scene with a giant fire hose um, before the police investigators could get to it. Um, you know, that's somebody he could work with because they're corrupt. And, and so, so those are the kind of things you, you see in these states to, to, to basically make it impossible to prosecute and impossible to reelect um, these people. And then the media is, is bought out by, you know, friends of the organization. They lose uh, advertising dollars from the state and from the phone companies and from these big things that typically fund media. And it's a playbook uh, on undermining the state. And fortunately, you even see some of these things going on in the United States you know, where media is getting bought out by people, you know, where, where there's propaganda and there's, you know, attacks against law enforcement and media, you know, designed to undermine these, these kind of things. And, and that's, that's the, the real concern. So let's talk about, and I want to come back to the question of how bad it is here in the U.S. after, but let's talk about the enablers. So there are laws against some of these, you know, I guess maybe not in these countries individually. Is that the problem? Or, I mean... Is it the problem that the money's being hit in the West and the banks here are not incentivized to deal with it? They'll just pay the fine and it's too lucrative for them? Like, how do you explain the lack of enforcement of rules? We, we did, for instance, last year a project that was focused on Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse was one of the largest and very uh, respected banks in uh, Swiss banks. Um, so the, the they had a big name, and uh, but when, when you look at their history over the past 15 years, 20 years, they kept on paying fines for not complying with due diligence policies, for not fulfilling their, 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 their duties to check who, who their clients were. And they always, after paying each of the fines, they pretended, now we're clean, now we, we cleaned up our act. Well, guess what? Last year we found out that they have not cleaned, cleaned up their act, and we exposed Credit Suisse again. And um, now this the 11th is, time, by the way. Yeah, it's it, it, so this is really I mean, these models um, are embedded with the business of the bank. So they know that the fines will never trump the profit. So then, you know, they, they count on, on paying the fines and, and going forward with the same business model, which is ob obviously not sustainable in the in the longer run. But this business model was very damaging to lots of emerging democracies around the world, because the moment people started the Arab Spring, for instance, you know, there was a lot of hope. Or, you know, 89 in Eastern Europe, a lot of hope. Everybody thought now communism is gone and, you know, a new era is starting, democracy, capitalism and all that. But the reality to that was that, in fact, the same people who were in power before, because they managed to deposit their money in the Swiss banks, U.S. banks, EU banks, they were they were still factually in power. 
they were able to buy, you know, all the industries, all the everything that was up for grabs in those in those countries. Because in those countries, nobody could go for private business because they didn't know how how to go about it. So when Hosni Mubarak so, is ousted or Ben Ali in Tunisia, it does not matter. The money's it does not. They can still access their money. Yes, okay. they never froze it. You're saying right, unless we expose it and uh, we were able to expose some of that money you know after after the arab spring for instance we found out that the head of the secret service in egypt you know uh, they you know they had some money in switzerland and some of that money was frozen but it's very little i mean i i, I don't think we we exposed the bulk of it and the bulk of it is really what undermines democracy and what cuts hope when change uh, happens and and you know a, a lot of this too is is it happens outside of the country it happens with um offshores yeah so if you have an offshore company you can do a lot of things you can you can trade with your company at at a loss for your company so that's essentially embezzlement you can you can on december when you've made 12 million dollars you can move it offshore in a in some kind of contract with this offshore company at at a cost of 12 million so now you've evaded taxes um it it's this incredibly easy to use tool um that that people found and once the money goes offshore it it's basically opaque and and law enforcement can't follow that um across borders and so that's what really happened is you know the offshore industry became huge and if you look at places like Ukraine during um you know the 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 days of Yanukovych who was the, the pro Russian leader the largest trade partners of of Ukraine were Cyprus and the British Virgin Islands <laughs> you know which which is all offshore you know, and they're all tiny territories, you know, compared to Ukraine. <laughs> so how it, can they be? And they don't produce anything. Yeah. None of them produce anything. So there's nothing to trade. So so it was really, um, you know, th- this became uh, almost every single business deal involved offshores, and that's how they really, you know, evaded. And then and then of course, you know, the lawyers and the others helped them get the money into hedge funds, and hedge funds in America are unregulated, and you can't find out who's got money in a hedge fund. And so consequently, you know, the system is set up to allow this money to be essentially laundered uh, around the world and and for nobody to to figure it out and there is no world policeman as as Paul mentioned and Interpol so Interpol or something and that's a communications device that's, it's not that's, a law enforcement yeah. agency if if I may actually add to this uh, mm-hmm. it's not just reactive it's not just like some lawyers or accountants sitting there in their offices and mm-hmm. waiting for the you know kleptocrat to come in to knock <laughs> on their door these people are actually proactive. They're seeking. So it. they're recruiting. They're creating pipelines for massive, you know, fraud, and they uh, and that, those pipelines include offshore type of companies, include banks, include proxies, formation agents. Everything is given as a package to these people, and then they organize meetings just like these ones, uh, um, you know, where they advertise their services. To recruit people, you know, to use their pipelines to launder money, to go about the theft, to go about the fraud. So these are these enablers are proactive. They're part of the crime, not just you know assistance uh, and to and the they, crime. They they connect you. So if you need to, you know, you need an American lobbyist, I'll introduce you to Paul Manafort. You know, uh, it, it's it's a kind of system where they would connect everybody together. So every need that you have, um, you know, it gets covered because you've got billions of dollars now. You know, you're. You're a, a whale, and, and they're going to get the it's, money. It's interesting. It's like it's kind of like they're doing it out in the open. Yeah. It's. I mean, I don't know what percent. We haven't. We're not talking about crypto or anything where you try and hide it. You're they're pretending to do it this way using Credit Suisse lobbyists that are registered in the U.S. It's not Absolutely. a secret. Look, years ago when you um, arrived into Riga, the, the Riga airport in Latvia, uh, which is a country at, uh, at the Baltic Sea, 
you you could see you know when you were waiting for your luggage on the band you know you could see all these commercials you know use our banking system you know, use use our uh, you know offshore type of uh, companies and, and and so on it was all in the open right right there so there was a recent UN report I think that estimated money laundering at 2 trillion per year yeah is that right I think that that the US annual budget's about 6.5 so almost a third of the annual, annual US budget is money laundered like yeah it's an extraordinary number uh, it, and, and abroad, it's worse. We actually looked at the amount of spending that governments do versus the amount of spending organized crime does. And, and in, in the United States, it's about 26 to 30 to 1. Um, so government spends about $30 for every dollar of crime. Um, but if you go into Mexico, it's 15 to 1. Mm-hmm. And the difference between 30 to 1 and 15 to 1 is the difference between a country that is ruled by law and one that is not. Yeah. It is in chaos. Now you go into Eastern Europe, in Serbia, it's six to one. If you go to Montenegro, it's one to one. Now imagine organized crime having the same amount of money as a state. You know, you cannot run a, a state with, with that kind of relationship. It, it's, you've lost already. I want to talk about, shift to some of the more spectacular, uh, I mean, you've done a lot, everything's spectacular, but after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, you published the Russian Asset Tracker. Right, which cataloged, I believe, twenty billion dollars in foreign assets, more than twenty billion dollars held by those close to Vladimir Putin. Talk about that investigation. Um, what can you say about how you tracked it and what the impact was when you published it? So, so we had a head start. We've been we've been working Putin's inner circle for a long time. Um, when nobody was really interested in this issue, we were we were writing story after story after story of where this money was going. So we knew a lot of where this money was. We knew a lot of the names of the of the yachts, the super yachts that were there. So, um, but but you know, it's fairly it's fairly simple to do this because once you figure out all these people have a proxy. Uh, and that proxy might be a family member, but it's often um, somebody, you know, associated with them. And once you figure out the proxies, um, you can start figuring out where the assets are um, because they register everything in the, in the name. And they, they think while they're registering in that proxy, that proxy will never be discovered. Um, but, you know, we work hard on this. We get leaks. We get information, Panama Papers, Pandora Papers, you know, the work we did on the laundromats eventually release some of these names and then we're able to go and track down large amounts of assets. So we simply, it's old-fashioned follow-the-money journalism. We go through all our records. We, we request, you know, land records. You know, we request, uh, you know, uh, airplane and, and yacht registrations and just figure out, we'll find those proxies. Yeah. And we do this zoom in and out between digital records and paper records. Because uh, in many countries, you still have to go paper, you know, in order to uh, find out if a property is owned by X or Y. And sometimes, so we actually have a, um, a side of OCCRP that's pure research. You know, these, these are people who are very focused and, and they know how to track down a company, how to track down a, a, a bank, how to track down property and all that. But sometimes when you do the field work, you come across amazing things. Like I remember some of our reports is going to Spain near... Uh, Madrid somewhere, and they, they found this, this, this villa because we had these records, these property records that showed that the villa was owned by a Russian oligarch. And they went there, and on that street there were some workers doing some, some work on the street. And our reporters asked the workers, do you know if, if this villa belongs to, the, to these people? And, and, and they said, um, actually, uh, we're, we're, we're not quite aware of that. 
But these other two villas, they belong to this Russian and that Russian, you know, which gave us another opportunity to get new records to prove that indeed, because these people tend to cluster together. So it's about understanding how they work, what kind of documents you, you can actually get, who are their proxies, who are their lawyers, and then you go from there, and once you pierce the system, you have a great entry point to understand what's going on and to expose more and more. And thank God for their girlfriends and their daughters, um, because they post to Instagram, and we get the pictures, and we, we, we figure out what boat it is or what house it is, and you geocode it, and you figure out where the property is. So what was the fallout of this when it came out? What kind of impact did you have? So, so there was a lot of yachts that were seized right away. Um, unfortunately, you know, these people are smart. They have American and they have, you know, British lawyers. And the lawyers warn them that, you know, the, the sanction laws um, allow them to have up to 50%. But if they go to 51%, it can be seized. And so a lot of these, even though they were, you know, known to own this boat, they, they were appeared on it all the time, you know, they said they owned the boat, it was 50% owned by somebody else. Um, usually in offshore. And so they're now in a number of court battles around the world um, over these mansions and these boats. Um, and they have a lot of very wealthy lawyers in the dark now um, fighting these, you know, in small courts all over Europe, um, you know, in places like Monaco. And, and you know, Europe is surprisingly corrupt um, and they will end up getting back um, many of these assets. And uh, also governments found out how expensive it is you know, to actually keep these these yachts moored somewhere, and that's that's another uh, another problem because a lot of taxpayers' money is used right now to you know uh, to just keep those yachts there, and uh, it's it's not easy because unless they're fully in the property of the state and they can be sold, you know, to to make some some profit on that, you know, it's actually a, an, an expense for for the citizens. You, so it's a very complex issue. You you could see actually in 2014 when when Russia first invaded. Ukraine, the oligarchs started scattering their, their assets even back then. So a lot of the assets were changing ownership then. And then the ones that hadn't done it started doing it in, the, in the, literally the weeks before um, uh, the, the latest invasion. So you had a, a kind of role in the, the first impeachment of President Trump. Is that right? Uh, an indirect role, yeah. Can you talk about, tell the story of, remind everybody who Lev Parnas is. So, so Lev... <laughs> Lev Parnas is, is a Ukrainian businessman who's been in the United States. He had an, another business partner. And we started looking at um, Rudolf Giuliani and his visits to, um, to Ukraine, where he was um, uh, actively engaged in trying to get Ukraine to do something about um, Hunter Biden. Um, but we found that he, and, and this is true of a lot of politicians, you know, you can look at the Menendez case, you know, um, they start having interests in some of these countries. And he started dealing with people who had very clear connections to organized crime. And, and so that's what the story was about. It was a simple story, didn't get a lot of attention, but basically, um, you know, he was connected to, uh, to, to organized crime. It was organized crime we knew, you know, he, th this was also described as business people or controversial businessmen, but, but they were known organized crime figures who had been in, in the, you know, the old Ukrainian white books, which was a registry of organized crime figures. Um, and so that story ended up um, uh, being uh, cited five times um, by the whistleblower in that particular case. So, yeah, do you want to add on that, Paul, or we can move on to another? No, uh, I mean, if you look at the Giuliani case, that's not a singular case. I mean, there are, unfortunately... Um, 
lots of U.S. former officials uh, who worked with organized crime in Eastern Europe and assisted olig uh, oligarchs in Eastern Europe, former heads of the FBI, uh, former you know, uh, general attorneys and, 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 and people like this who just saw an opportunity to make money and the people with money in Eastern Europe were the kleptocrats. So they worked for them and that was very disconcerting for the local populations who saw, well, this big name comes here and says this crook is actually not corrupt, he's, he's honest. And that was a big, big blow actually in, in many of these countries where these people were defended and, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, these people would just issue a, a, a form, a, a, a paper that, uh, that would actually say, we looked very carefully at this corruption case and these guys are just not guilty. Although there, was there were mountains of evidence, but because they came from this environment, former heads of the FBI, they had, their word had uh, a lot of weight. Am ambassadors, um, you know, uh, prime ministers, you know, uh, you know uh, Gerhard Schroeder, um, you know, Tony Blair, uh, all these people have, have gone in and have dealt with people who are, who are truly criminal. Um, and and they, it's, they, they do this on purpose. They, they, they seek to have these relationships with people. It's a, it's a laundering operation. It's a reputation laundering operation. Mm -hmm. And so they hire these people to, to come in and, and, and show up and, and, and talk to them and appear in public. And, and it's just basically a way to, to launder them. So once you've stolen two or three billion dollars, you don't really want to be known as a criminal anymore. You want to be known as a as a businessman. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, you know, people people think, you know, um, that the people like Abramovich and others, you know, they, they're all controversial Russian businessmen. But but actually, you know, many of these people are organized crime people. Um, they were organized crime people. They stole from the state. They bribed public officials. In many cases, they killed people. You know, the, 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 the winners of the of the aluminum wars in Russia, you know, the over 250 uh, aluminum company executives were murdered in Russia, you know, in, in this process. So these people have now gotten rich. They're, they're, they're comfortable. They got the nice houses. They got the yacht. And they need to clean everything up. And that's what often um, these Western um, politicians do. Yeah. I want to ask one more question before we shift to some more of the journalism uh, nuts and bolts. But another, what, we talked a lot about the banks, but in terms of another way for this laundering is through real estate. And you did an investigation that related, I think, to the recent coup in Gabon, right? Is that right? And where you showed how the family, the ruling family had stashed the stolen money in a D.C. property. I lived in D.C. for 10 years, so I know about this dictator's row that is, you know, um. where they've all these African owned um, big mansions, but do we have any bad actors paying cash for housing in the Bay Area? Oh, absolutely. Really? Yeah, you yeah. do. I, I, I can't specifically name them, and, and, you know, we're very interested in this topic as the Bay Area, some of the highest real estate, you know, uh, in, in, in the United States and in the world. And so you, you, when, you're, when you have to launder a million dollars, it's not that difficult. When you have to launder a billion dollars and then park it, that's really difficult. And so you can't have, you know, a, a $2 million home. You need a, you know, $200 million home. You know? Where are you going to find it? Exactly. Here, Marin. And you're going to find it here and yeah. you're going to find it in New York. Um, and, and so that's where a lot of stuff, there are buildings in New York that are, have $200 million apartments and are completely empty. You'll never see anybody going in and out of them because it's just money that's being parked. And, and the other place that they commonly park it is in, um, in, in uh, farmland. And so a tremendous amount of farmland. At one point, uh, our estimate was one-third of eastern Slovakia was owned by the Indrangana Mafia out of Italy. Um, and they were using it for farm subsidy fraud. 
Um, and so I would not be surprised if the Sinaloa drug cartel or other organizations own significant amount of real estate in the Central Valley and other places like that. And, and we're, we're trying right now to work together with Stanford, with Big Local, um, on, a, on a big property uh, project to determine who's behind some of the California uh, property in, in about five counties. The, the thing is, I mean, we, we exposed a lot of corruption in, in the property uh, area in Florida, in New York, because it's easier there to work with databases compared to California, which, which is interesting. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's much easier to identify bad parties with property in, in Dade County, for instance, compared to, you know, here. And so that's because here people uh, were actually smarter and they used uh, more uh, LLCs, offshore type of companies, you know, to hide their names behind various other layers. Uh, I think it's, I mean, it's still doable uh, and, and we'll do it, uh, but it's much harder in, in California. Yeah, you, you, you'll find offshores and then you have to, you have to break the, 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 you know, the veil over the offshore, which sometimes you can do, you know, we have a, a database system that's got about four billion entities related to organized crime and corruption. These are from leaks and from other sources of information that we've collected over the years in public records. Um, and then we can we can use that to see if it was in Panama Papers or if it was in one of the other leaks. We've got more leaks than we can even process. Um, it, our limiting factor is we don't have enough money to to pay Google to store all of our databases on the system. Our our storage budget is thirty thousand dollars a month. Um, just to store our data. Um, so, so this is the real problem, um, you know, and there's, there's really just not enough resources in journalism to do the kind of big data crunching that you need to do this, which is, you know, Google is a wonderful organization. They got our database started, but now we've paid five times more than they, they gave us to build the database back and storage fees to them. So um, it's, it's an issue we're trying to solve. So you just said something startling to me, two things. One, that really... You, if you had more money, you could store more data and you could do more investigations, right? Yep. I mean, it's basically, you've got more leaks than you can process, which is like yep. a journalist's dream, right? You know, that doesn't happen every day. So how do you decide then how to prioritize what to focus on? Do you look at what is the most starkly criminal, the most impacts the most people or the most doable? Uh, so um, if I may address this yeah. first, I mean, it's, it's really, we, we're usually building up on our previous reporting. So we want to deepen a topic as, as much as possible. So once we understand that this type of offshores from Belize, for instance, are used by criminal groups all over the world to own property, then we go for all the Belize companies, you know, in, in all these places that are hot, you know, California, let's say, Florida, the south of France, mm -hmm. Australia, and so on and so on. And then we go for these type of projects that build on our previous experiences because these are the, the ones that yield the most, um, uh, the most good for us. And, um, you know, these are the projects that are done in the public interest. Now, this being said, as Drew said, we can't really process all these data sets that, that we have because it's not just about storing the data in the cloud. It's about computing power. It's about matching database against database. A database of uh, people involved in politics in Eastern Europe against a property database in the U.S. I mean, all the U.S. You need to somehow I mean, standardize across. So, yeah, yeah. So, so, so this type of work is is very difficult to do. I mean, technically it's simple, but because the access to information is so poor, you know, and you have to go county by county to get the data, and then you have to consolidate it, and uh, by by the time that you're done with it, everything changes, and so on. So there are many factors there there that interfere with uh, our work, but really the fact that 
tech companies don't don't help with this. Actually, as, as Drew said, we're paying a lot of money and we refrain from ingesting certain data sets inside our systems because the cost is too high for us and we can't. We can't give you a it. journalist discount at Google. We have tried every single human being we know. Anybody work at Google here? Um, look up. I mean, so you guys are. It's interesting because you're kind of a hybrid, right? You're not a conventional New York Times media organization, right? You also work directly with some civil society groups. Mm-hmm. So talk about that kind of newish model. It's a little bit different. Yeah. So so we, you know, the, the the whole journalism industry is really in flux right now, and there's all sorts of hybrid organizations out there. You know, Bellingcat is is a great or- example. You know, they were the ones who identified, you know, who shot down MH17, that it was a Buk missile from the Russian um, side that, that did that. Um, and, and they're an activist organization that does investigative reporting. You have TI, which Transparency International, which has investigators, but they're an activist organization. So, so what, what traditionally has happened is journalists refuse to work with activists. Um, but in, in many places around the world, that's, a, that's really a problem. It means nothing gets done. And so we said we, we need to work with activists, but we can't let them interfere with what we're, what we're doing on stories. So we created what's called the Global Anti-Corruption Consortium, and that's where we do investigative stories. And then we share our methodology and our data, and we pass it over the wall to, to um, uh, activists. Uh, and allow them to use it, which traditionally journalists would not do. And there are some organizations that would say that's wrong. Um, but we're working in Kazakhstan, and we're working in Tajikistan, and we're working in places where, you know, this stuff is not going to get done. And so, you know, we, we've invited them to use it. And then they do things like file suspicious wealth orders in the UK, or they file, um, you know, Magnitsky filings. Complaints. Uh, yeah, and they complaints. Um, you can file, individuals can file criminal charges in countries. Um, and they, they've, they've, they've made our work five times more impactful than it would be by just us alone. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's real world change. And, and we think that's worth it in these countries where there really is no hope. And we've been able to get $10 billion returned to government coffers because of our work directly. And, and that's a 13,000% return on every dollar spent in OCCRP um, that, that actually goes back to government. So if you want to raise money for governments, open OCCRP in your country <laughs> and you'll make money. Um, and, and we think that that's, that's worth the trade-off. So, you, you know, journalists are notoriously, news organizations are notoriously competitive, and they don't tend to collaborate on things. Right. But you've managed to kind of facilitate some of the, you've managed to break through that taboo. Talk about how you did that. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, there's so much work out there and so few investigative reporters that it doesn't make sense to compete mm-hmm. in that way. Because there's just, I mean, stories up for grabs, and we're not touching them because we don't have, you know, enough, enough journalists. So... What we realized a long time ago, more than 15 years ago, is that if you want to go um, against organized crime, if you want to expose them and corrupt politicians, everything goes across borders. You cannot do it without the local journalism, um, you know, uh, without local people who, who know wh- how, how things work in their, their, their own country. So without uh, breeding this space, this investigative space where you can exchange easily information across borders, you will never be able to expose a network because uh, you got to have local information com- combined with uh, this trend, uh, trans, uh, trans, transcontinental information in order to create the picture 
And uh, this is the only way to serve the citizens in a meaningful way. Now, when Panama Papers started that, uh, that we were part of, you know, there was resistance from big media in the US to participate in such a collaboration. And that was interesting to me because I was sure, I mean, this is in the best interest of the citizens, you, you, you know, in the US and, and everywhere. But there was this resistance because the journalists, the investigative reporters were still considered or considered themselves as lone wolves. You know, they get a whistleblower and they work with the data or they get a record and they run with it without sharing anything. But it, this created a, a huge problem because you're cherry picking stories that sometimes just answer to your ego rather than answering the, the public interest. And secondly, it puts you in great danger, danger because this work across networks also ensures a higher degree of safety for the journalists. Well, that's my next question. It leads perfectly. How do you protect the people that work at your organization and the journalists who are doing this? I mean... Reporter by reporter, story by story. I mean, it really is. We, we tr spend a tremendous amount of time doing this. We have our own witness protection program where we can literally move reporters around the region and around countries um, to protect them. Um, you know, we have, we have security people. We have two digital security people. I myself, as, as you know, when I was a publisher and editor, um, you know, I, I get involved in it directly. Paul gets involved in it directly. And we have meetings on, a, on almost a daily basis now going over issues. And our, our, our process is a little different. What we do is um, we first investigate the threat. So um, people um, kill or they don't kill. Um, if they kill, when do they kill? How do they kill? Why do they kill? Where do they kill? W what is their modus operandi? And we re literally report this to try to understand who it is we're dealing with, how dangerous they are, and what they're what they're likely to do. And so we we design a very specific set of protocols for a given story on safety, and we follow those protocols. And then you know we we train all our reporters in surveillance and counter surveillance so that they can identify when there's security because uh, when when there's a security problem because. What we found out is when organized crime typically kills people, if this if it's not Mexico, um, they'll um, they'll uh, basically follow you anywhere from three to to six weeks, and that may be the only indication that somebody is um, you know wishes you harm. And so, consequently, we train our reporters um, uh, to look for that surveillance and identify it, and they're taught in how to do you know anti and counter surveillance. Um, and so, you know, we, we look for these types of things and then we, you know, we move people out, but we just had to, you know. What do you mean you move people out? We, we'll move them out of the country if, if there's, if we've identified surveillance. How often do you have to do that? Uh, almost twice a month. You know, it's, it's that bad. We just had to move yeah. our whole organization, organization out of Kyrgyzstan. Um, that we're in the process of doing that right now because the government got taken over by an organized crime group um, and uh, it's, it's, um, they're directly threatening the lives of the people. And we moved all, all our Russian reporters from Russia. Naturally. I mean, so we've, you know, I've met with a lot of these Russian reporters in exile at Stanford and, I mean, increasingly you're having to do a lot of this work remotely from yes. so many places, Turkey, Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, Russia, Kyrgyzstan, I mean, Kazakhstan, and so does, Nicaragua. does being able to get records digitally compensate for that? But sometimes you need someone to go see the villa with their own eyes. 
Yeah. So how do you how do you continue to do this kind of accountability investigations when you're in exile because they might kill you? We 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 have friends of friends and <laughs> and other things. We sometimes hire lawyers to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are ways to get that information in country. Um, the the reporter has to stay outside the country. And as Paul said, all of these are cross border issues. And so there's a lot. You know, you're often if you're if you're looking at Russia, you're spending more time in London than right. you are in Moscow. <laughs> And also, interestingly enough, but in these very corrupt environments, in these very corrupt countries, so they don't just kick journalists out, they shut down databases. But because they are corrupt, there's a lot of data on sale. Yeah, so you can go buy it. On black market. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big part of of our work to kind of use that data that's handed to us by hackers, by various people. And that's... that's How do they approach you? How do they offer, offer it? Is it like, you know, like we have like this buy nothing group, like on Facebook or like, would, would like it's how do they email sometimes email yeah. Yeah. like, Hey, I got something for you. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh. And, and we, we, we have a, we, we have a, a system that, that you can put it, uh, an un, you know, it to us. Yeah. Oh, you, uh, you can leave it. Sometimes they do that. Tips, sometimes like a they, tips box. Right. They do directly sometimes. Not like a tips box at a diner, like a, yeah. a email tips, email. Well, yeah. it, it's like a Dropbox. Dropbox, it, yeah. It's, it's actually a system that's secure mm-hmm. and that uh, ensures uh, anonymity of the people who give us the, the data. Right. right let's, I want to talk about hacks and leaks. Do you yeah. use hacks, hacked materials? Absolutely. Um, How do you feel we, about we, that? We don't, use, we don't hack anything ourselves. Okay. We, 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 our, our rule is we don't never pay for data. Um, we never encourage any hacking. We don't um, hack ourselves or get involved in it in any way. Well, you just said you went on the black market, though, and you can buy the buy the stuff. We don't buy it. Who buys it? We, we actually get it from people who buy it. Oh. People, well, in, in, in Moscow, you could literally get every single database in the Russian government on the street. If it's uh, on the street... Um, you know, uh, you, you, you can you can get it from people who bought it, and and some of our partner organizations do buy the data on the street mm-hmm. with with the rationale that if it's available to everybody in the public, right? You know, um, that that you know, and the the police aren't doing anything. It's about out there it, already. It's okay. right. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to hide it. But you know, um, you know, we 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 if somebody has said, I hacked this data. Um, you know, uh, then, then in, in certain cases we will take it in certain cases we will not take it. It depends on the circumstances of the case. Um, but you know, what, because anybody who is in any of the databases would never get mentioned unless they went through a whole process of determining that it was in the public interest and that it was accurate and that we could prove it in other ways, um, you know, we, we will use data that has been um, stolen from, from organizations and given to us. We will never encourage anybody to steal it. But, you know, this, this Swiss secrets that he talked about, you know, Credit Suisse was clearly stolen by, an, you know, somebody in the organization and then given out because that's Swiss banking information. That's a, that's a crime in Switzerland to possess that data. Um, the other thing that we will do is, um, and this is um, distasteful, um, but, you know, there are a number of people who have been blackmailed um, with their public information, with, with their private information. Um, and that information has been sold, um, uh, you know, uh, or has been distributed on the, the black um, uh, sites around the world. So dark markets. Yeah. yeah if, if somebody had 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 a hacker come in and, and you know, ran, put ransomware on their system. Um, if it's a if it's a, uh, a large public company or if it's a company of interest, we will download that stuff that they post 
um, and then use it to look for criminal activity, stuff that is in the public interest. Because I think the public would say, I would rather know that my politician is corrupt um, than, than, um, you know, than, than for you to say, oh, my, my ethics don't allow me to download this data and look at it. And, and so that's, that's a, a, an aggressive stance, we admit, but um, we, the, the rule that we have is we have to tell the reader exactly how we got the data. That's what I was going to say. What kind yeah. of transparency? Yeah. What's your transparency doctrine in this? Yeah. We, we, we have to tell them exactly where we got the data and, and the, the terms of it and, um, so that they can judge us. Um, and they have a right to say, I disagree with you. And, uh, but, but let me just say this, you know, I mean, um, ethics and, and, you know, a crystal clear ethics in journalism is, uh, and I know this sounds bad, but it, it, is, the, um, it is the luxury of wealthy countries. Um, in many different places around the world, you know, it's, it's, it, the, the country itself is fundamentally corrupt. Um, and in those kind of cases, they're not looking after the public interest. Mm-hmm. We are the only ones who are left looking after the public interest. And so that is one of the reasons why we do that. We would behave a little differently with U.S. data um, because it's a different situation. And, and in many of these countries, what is considered here public records, you know, they're not public records in those countries. So you need to, to use leaks. You need to use hack data. And most of the better stories are actually at the intersection of these leaks. You know, so that's where you combine the leaks between them and you combine a you know, company uh, database from the U.S. You know, with uh, names of the politicians from Romania, let's say, my own country and so on. And that's where the story is. But then sometimes it's about combining many leaks at the same time you know, and, and going against, against this data to find deeper stories. And many of these, um, uh, a lot of this leaked information gets more value as you go in time. Because the more you understand the context of the theft, the more you understand how that leak fits with many other uh, public or, you know, hacked data, you know, that's, that's where you can develop the story uh, truly. All right. So I want to, we've got 15 minutes left. I want to shift to some of the, integrate some of the audience questions here. There's a couple U.S. questions. Are you looking at Trump's role in this? And are you looking at Clarence Thomas? Okay. We, 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 um, we, we, we look at uh, organized crime as, uh, you know, uh, uh, primarily if, if uh, we, we're, we're not avoiding them. Um, we, we don't have uh, uh, money in the United States to do investigative reporting. Um, we have very little money that's, that's dedicated in the United States. Most of our work is international. So our focus in the United States has really been trying to connect media who's doing work here to our global network. Um, and so if somebody's working on that story, we're happy to help them. Um, but, but we don't really start uh, very many stories in the United States. It's usually stuff that has started abroad uh, and arrives in the United States. But, you know, we'll, we'll look at any – we've done stories on Biden's laptop, uh, you know, and we've done stories on Donald Trump. So we're not against it, you know. Um, it's just a matter of where we're going to be most effective. And we very often find U.S. angles to big corruption stories from Africa, from Europe, from other parts of the world. And then we connect with local media here to exploit, exploit those, those angles. So someone wanted to follow up on the question about the parking the money in housing and in, in real estate and how that is there a relationship to sort of the, the housing shortage and Absolutely. homelessness in the, in the country? A- and how, do you, how can local journalists who don't have the expertise that you all have actually pursue this story? 
they can contact us. If they've got an offshore, they can contact us, and we're happy to work with, with local journalists. Um, we're, we're trying to get more money. Um, uh, what do you mean if they have an offshore? They can't, like, as the San Francisco Chronicle or, like, a local freelancer con- so, so, so if they run into and they find, okay, this is a company in out of Belize, oh. um, they, they can contact us and oh, say, hey, you guys do international work and you help on this. I see. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. So in about 20% of the cases, we can figure out who's ultimately behind the offshore. And, and also, I mean, what, what, we, what we can provide is the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Because it's not it's always not about about a single case. It's a phenomenon. And that's where we can describe, you know, from our experience how we dealt with that type of problem and that can that may benefit, you know, uh, journalists here in the US. So where should San Francisco journalists look for some of this dirty and dark money? So, so first in real estate, um, you know, you, you you definitely want to look at real estate. Um the other thing is there's a lot of um purchases of, uh, of uh, kind of blue chip assets that are going on. You'll notice that um, Forbes magazine um, got purchased recently um, for $800 million, which many people said was about you know twice the value that should have been paid for it. Um, and there was a, a, an American businessman, an entrepreneur who bought it. Um, the Washington Times just posted a story um, quoting people who had talked with a a Russian kleptocrat who's very, very close to Putin, uh, bragging um, at an event that he had actually bought it and describing this person as a proxy on his behalf. And, and um, you know, that's an incredibly worrying story. Um, and so, um, you know, some of these big deals will be, will be bought by people, but you have to look behind, are they the kind of people who would buy this? You know, why did they buy it? Do they have enough money? Um, to purchase it, you know, um, were they in league with other unnamed uh, companies or with hedge funds or with offshore companies that were in the in the, the purchase agreement? So you may have to go in and source, you know, some some of these documents to figure out who's exactly involved in the deal. You know, in 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 most of the world, you know, there's always a company at twenty percent that's in the deal. It's an offshore, and that's always the kickback to the president. You know. Every single time. And you can identify that company right away. And, and that's what you're kind of looking for. You're looking for somebody in the deal who shouldn't necessarily be there. And if you uncover that, then you might be able to find a case where there's a proxy situation. And people should be looking at enablers, local enablers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bet you here in San Francisco, there's probably a dozen lawyers who work with kleptocrats, you know, from other parts of the world. And it's a it's a system where everybody knows everybody. And once a, an oligarch buys the property here in the Bay Area, you know, there, there will be other friends of his or hers coming here, you know, to purchase through the same lawyer, through the same How do they accountant. find the lawyer? What should they do? Well, we'll say they don't have a leak. That's, that's easy. Easy? <laughs> yeah. It's plenty corrupt. You, you, you just, you know, you... They, Google, they, corrupt... You, you just talk to another, yeah. Oligarch lawyer. Sometimes you, talk, you just Google, you know, offshore services, San Francisco, and... Yeah, and, company formation. That's, you, that's, you know, that's your what it your, is. your offshore registration agent will have a lawyer that they can recommend to you. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we we went in once to an offshore registration agent and we said we just got a hold of 1.5 million barrels of Nigerian crude oil, which we want to import into Europe without paying taxes. And they said, sure, <laughs> we can help you. Here's how it works. And they they basically had a you know a, an off. You did a fake thing to, off to the test shelf. it. Yeah. We, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So, so, so we had an off, they had an off-the-shelf solution. They had, an, they had companies that had been registered months ago in different jurisdictions mm-hmm. with the same name, 
you know, in various jurisdictions so that you can get confused as to where it actually is from. Um, and they were willing to actually use their own businesses for a small percentage, you know, that, that they would, they would you know, step in the process to move the money around and hide it. And so, you know, and this is not unusual. Other organizations have repeated this exact same story. So. So, oh, wow. Um, there's a couple of questions here about South America and Mexico and, you know, countries there. Like, is, would you call Mexico a dark money state? What about Brazil and Argentina? These countries should be doing very well, but aren't. Is how prevalent is organized crime in South America in general? It's it's very prevalent because uh, these are places where narcotics are are sourced uh, from uh, cocaine or fentanyl right now. For in in Mexico, obviously the fentanyl comes from China, but via Mexico it enters the U.S. And these are breeding grounds for for crime and corruption because of um, you know there's a lot of local corruption in Mexico the the president of Mexico one of the first thing uh, things he did when he he became a president was to get real, rid of this uh, of uh, of the police force that was investigating organized crime across the country so he said from now on the army will will deal with this and that was a, a, a huge problem not just i mean there was for sure a lot of uh, corruption inside those police forces but guess what all those thousands and thousands of police are going to do after they're kicked out, after they're fired? They're going to just go join organized crime. So there's, this is why you have more killing in Mexico than you had like five, ten years ago. So you, you have the same uh, you know, in Brazil, you have the same in a number of countries in uh, South America. Uh, but when you look at the business model, those people are always uh, working either with Europeans or with people from here or with people from, from other parts of the world. So it's all like these transnational systems, and they slowly, slowly, slowly gain more power in the West. And they're able to you know, influence more politicians, sometimes locally, and then they grow and grow. We just uh, we helped uh, the LA Times uh, this summer do an investigation into this uh, EBT fraud, this, uh, these cards you know, that, uh, that are given with people without uh, means. And there were groups from Mexico that were scheming, that were cloning these cards and stealing money from, from the poor, basically. But when you looked at the system that they developed, these people were working here with local lawyers in California, and they were big criminal cartels back in Mexico, back in Brazil. So it's, it's really all connected. You can't talk about corruption in Mexico or, or Brazil without speaking about corruption here or in Europe. And, and, you know, President AMLO said, um, you know, famously a couple of weeks ago that there is not a, a, a crime problem in Mexico. You know, he's overseeing 100,000 dead people, you know, in that country are missing. Um, you know, uh, when, when you see that kind of behavior, um, you, you, you really have to conclude that, that um, uh, they're not willfully ignorant of what's going on, that, that, that they're basically propagandizing their own people um, to make them think that there isn't a problem. And, and, you know, the, uh, unfortunately, we have seen it, it is incredibly cheap to, to bribe state officials. Incredibly cheap. You know, like $5,000, $30,000 bought a member of the European Parliament for Azerbaijan. You know, it, it's not expensive to buy people, unfortunately. So how worried should we be about this phenomenon, phenomenon growing here in the U.S.? And it, it's you already grown. It's, it's already it's, it's already it's, here. It's, it's here. You, you just haven't seen it yet. And, and you know, when, when you start seeing odd behavior from your politicians and saying things that, you know, are not true. And when you see police, you know, um, uh, you know, coming up with uh, odd, 
you know, uh, solutions to problems, you, you start to, to wonder if there really is a problem. And, you know, there, there is a tremendous amount of illegal money here. Um, whether it's corrupting the system or not is another issue. In some places, it probably is. Um, and, and those have to be identified. It, it's a far bigger problem than Americans realize. But the good news is that all you have to do is out it. The, the U.S. justice system works um, compared to most of the places we work. All you need to do is really out it. But, but American journalists need to work more on follow-the-money kind of journalism, and they need to really kind of dig into these issues. There, there's just not enough work being done in this area. Yeah, and um, one of the issues is, I mean, it, it's not all corruption, actually. It's criminals are smart, and they're very, very creative, and they, 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 can, they can, you know, outsmart, you know, um, journalists, you know, and police and, and, and everybody. So that's where you need to have this global perspective on crime to understand local crime. If you don't have that, you know, you, you can't really see that these fragments of, of crime here and there are connected. And if you address only fragments, you don't address the issue. Yeah, the, the, these people are audacious. They're audacious in ways, you know, this is, um, uh, if Bill Gates killed, you know, that's what you'd have in El Chapo. You know, these are brilliant people. They've succeeded. They've gotten to the top of their business. Um, you know, these are the Elon Musks and the Bill Gates. Um, but they're in, just incredibly ruthless. They're, they're uh, you know, complete narcissists, uh, psychopaths, and, and they will kill you at, at a moment's notice if they think it's in their benefit. So, so they're really very difficult people to deal with. Um, and it, it's, 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 believe me, it's, I've sat across from them and it's, it's a very unnerving experience to, to interview these and, people. And to actually give you one example, uh, we would investigate what seemed to be, you know, these um, uh, cases of corruption in, in Turkey, in Romania, in Hungary, in Austria, in, 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 in a few countries. And they looked like completely separate cases, completely separate cases. But when we analyzed the court records, of each of these cases, we realized that the people behind the crime were always the same. So it's what we call the criminal angel investors. These were all-time criminals who now are in the money, and for them, the best business model is to sponsor more crime. So they sponsor uh, younger criminals, and the return on investment is great. You know, so then that's when you see, well, you know, instead of investigating that case and that case and that case, I'd better investigate these people who are behind the system, you know, and I'd better investigate the system because that's where the story is, really. And, and, and the problem is now you've got this weird coalition of, you know, the corrupt state actors like the Vladimir Putins and the MBSs and those and AMLOs, and you have libertarian billionaires um, and you have organized crime. And they're all now working together to undermine law enforcement and other things um, because it's all in their interest. Uh, it, it's in their interest to weaken democracy um, because the people who benefit most from poor democracy are criminals. Um, they love that situation. And so consequently, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really difficult time because they've all been connected by these criminal service industry people um, and they all have mutual interests. And, and that's a problem for us who care about democracy. So we're down to our last little more than a minute. So it's a bit of a speed round here for just quick comment on two final things. The most challenging issue you face, it sounds like it might be resources or money, but I want to know about that. And then I'm curious for all, if I have any uh, you know, budding journalists out there who want to work with OCCRP, what's the main skill or skills they need to do this kind of work? So biggest challenge and skills to do this work. 
Paul, take the first, I'll take the second. Yeah. The biggest challenge, yeah, I mean, uh, resources and the number of investigative reporters out there. We need a lot more people to become investigators. We really need to nurture this space to actually go to meaningful citizen investigative reporting, where the the journalists create the blueprint for the investigation and the citizen uh, citizens are able to create on top of that and carry on the investigations. So I think that's one of, one of the biggest problems right now. We need more resources to be able to develop first the blueprints, mm. you know, and then go from there to something much more meaningful. So, so passion, you know, uh, we, we, we need reporters with passion and, and that's the way to get in the door. And I, I look for journalists who are, you know, uh, obsessive, compulsive, disrespect <laughs> for authority, you know, um, ornery and, and stubborn. And, and if I find that right person that, that's going to dig and not stop, that's, that's what I'd love to hire. Do they need to like know R or anything or like coding skills? We'll, we'll teach you that. Okay. All right. Well, our thanks to Drew Sullivan and Paul Radu, co-founders of OCCRP, for joining us tonight at the Commonwealth Club. If you would like to support the club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit their website, www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Janine Zakaria. Thank you and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.